0: Friends, if you would turn in your copy of Scripture to page 873 in your pew Bible, or we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 14, verses 22, actually through 35, not through 25. Luke uh, um, 14, 22 through 35. So that's a misprint in your copy of Scripture. Luke 14, verses 22 through 35. And this is called the warning of Jesus. You ever have that moment where you're like, wait a second, am I, am I doing the right thing or is this on the right thing? And I just had that moment. So if, it's, if, if this is right, then I'm wrong. And if I'm right, then this is wrong. So either way, we're going to be looking at Luke 14 together. So Because uh, I did not prepare a Luke 13 message. So anyway, um, that, would not, that would be very scary if I started to just riff on that just randomly. So Luke 14 verses 22 through 35. So the main point of the message today, the warning of Jesus, is simply this. overfamiliarity with Jesus might kill you. Becoming too familiar with Jesus just might kill you. I've learned over the last few years that there's a great danger that each one of us has in becoming too familiar with the things of God. We know the right things to say. We know the ways to avoid any confession of sin by any kind of machinations that we can make in how we phrase things. We take many things that are spectacular and miraculous every single day for granted. We take our breath for granted. We take our life for granted. And this plays out in our relationships too. We can take our spouses for granted until they're gone. We can take our children for granted until they're gone. And this is common within the human condition. And this is what Israel struggled with as they were wandering through the wilderness of what we've looked at during this time of Lent. And they were fed with manna every single day. And they got water from the rock. And they took God for granted. And took His good gifts for granted and i oftentimes think like man if i could see manna fall down from heaven man i would i would totally believe all the time every every day i would believe yet the lord reminds us that you and i are not just prone to forgetfulness but we're prone to take god himself for granted and our passage today warns us against that ever-present danger For those of us who have grown up in the church or have been Christians for some time, we do this. There's a great danger in taking God for granted. I've seen it in my own life and I've seen it in the lives of those that I love and care for and have grown up with. We can become so familiar with Jesus. We can become so familiar with God's word that it just washes over us and it has no effect in our lives. We're like, oh yeah, Jesus healed people. Let I mean, just pause for a moment and consider this, that Jesus healed people, and Jesus continues to heal people. Jesus continues to give you and me breath and life, friendship, in spite of ourselves. <laughs> you have people in your life in spite of all of your mess-ups and all your screw-ups, all of your hurting of other people. God still gives you people in your life. That's miraculous. When I look at my own life and I'm like, wow, I don't know if I'd stick around me (laughs) maybe you find yourself in that same boat and so we hear Jesus this morning and my prayer this morning is that we would hear Jesus's warning and it wouldn't just be like oh I'm glad they heard that or I'm glad you heard that no instead Lord would you pierce all of our hearts this morning and that would Jesus's word come and pierce your heart this morning that is my prayer and that's been my prayer as I've been Meditating on this throughout the week. So let's look at Luke chapter 14 verses 22 through 35. This is what God's word says. Actually... Actually, you know what? I was wrong.) <laughs> It is Luke 13, 22 through 35. So go to Luke 13. My manuscript is wrong. Isn't that wonderful? So Luke 13, we're going to go there. Luke 13, go back one chapter. Luke 13, 22 through 35. I was like, wait a second, this is not right. So we're going to 22 through 35. So there's a whole lot of stuff going on here now. So here we go. Luke, Luke 13, 22 through 35. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer to you, I don't know where you come from. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first. And some are first who will be last. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course." Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. So I said that the main point of our passage today is that over familiarity with Jesus might kill you. If you and I can hear these words, you'd be like, okay, cool. Tell me something good. Tell me something, tell me something neat here. As opposed to letting it pierce our own hearts. Because Jesus Himself was about piercing the hearts of the Pharisees. Piercing the hearts of those who were the religious leaders of His day. Those who knew God's Word. We're going to see a a couple different characters here who were overly familiar with Jesus. To where it didn't pierce their heart. So the first point underneath that main point is this. The open door will close one day. The door that is open right now will one day close. And you see that in verses 22 through 25. See, notice the question to Jesus in verse 23. "Who or Will those who are saved be few? And it's a simple yes or no question, but Jesus doesn't say yes or no, does he? No, he doesn't do that. He He actually answers them with a command. Did you notice that? He says, hey, will will there be a lot who will be saved on the last day, or are there going to be a few, Jesus? We want to know. We want to know who's, who's of the chosen. Jesus doesn't say yes or no. He commands them. He says, strive to enter the narrow door. He gives them a command. He gives them a command. And why does Jesus do this? Well... I believe one reason is due to our tendency to discuss matters of faith as objects to be studied rather than moments where God wants to break through and speak to us directly. There's so much talk about predestination and God's sovereignty and trying to peer behind the veil of, ooh, is that what's happening here? Those aren't unimportant questions. But those aren't the questions that Jesus is concerning himself with, are they? Jesus seems to put the emphasis of His message on this question. What are you going to do? What are you going to do with what is sitting right in front of you? Those standing in front of Jesus are content with talking about theology. And that's why I think it was a really beautiful prayer request that William shared, is that as I'm studying all this stuff, Lord, keep me with a childlike faith. And so many times as we delve into these important topics, we can think that that is the sum and substance of what it means to be a Christian, is to know the finer points of theology, which again are important. I'm not saying yes or no here. But I'm asking the question, what are you going to do with what is staring you right in the face this morning? We must ask ourselves, do I... Talk about theology more than I actually engage with God? And let me ask you that this morning. Do you enjoy talking and asking those kind of questions more than you like letting the Spirit of God say, Are you communing with me? Are you spending time with me? Are you letting me change you? Or are you studying theology as though it is an object to understand and to get your arms around only? The door is open to us as long as we are breathing. As long as we have life and breath, the Lord says to you this morning, there's hope for you. There is a door always open. And why is there a door? Why why the image of a door? Because the Lord wants you to walk through that door and to fellowship with Him, to enter into communion with Jesus' answer is to focus their attention on what's right there now. It's very easy for us to imagine and ask questions that keep us from actually doing business with God Jesus wants to show us that the door is open right now and it's open for you right now you may have grown up in church all your life you may know some very fine points of theology and you may be able to argue with the best of them but the Lord challenges all of us to say Am I engaging with God? Am I actually communing with God? Or am I content with just holding Him out here? Like the Pharisees. Like the religious leaders who knew theology better than we could probably ever get our heads around. There is time to change. There is time to enter through an open door. But there must be an effort to enter the narrow door. And that's what we get in our second point but before we get there some ways that people can oftentimes and maybe you have done this or maybe you know folks have done this of keeping god at an arms distance is to say well if god controls everything then what do i have to do or don't judge me <laughs> don't judge me I, you know jesus said judge not lest you be judged <laughs> like don't, don't 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 tell me how i ought to live my life and There's so many errors in the Bible. How could you ever trust it? There's so much evil in the world. How could God be in control of everything? There's so many hypocrites in the church. I don't want to have any part of it. And so all those questions are all a mask for you to do business with God. We try to say, well, this is the real problem. And the real problem is, no, no, no. Are you engaging with the one who made you? And so... You have to strive to enter through the narrow door. God will not be content with you just asking questions about the end of time when right now standing in front of you and me is the biggest question of all, is what will you do with what stands in front of you? And so the second point is this. Grace begets grit. And this is the longer point of all three of these points. But grace begets grit. You can see that in verses 26 through 30. You know, anybody that's been here for any amount of time knows that I emphasize the grace of God. And I'm glad that we emphasize the gift of salvation that we just sang about. That God is the one who freely offers to each one of us if we'll come to Him. He opens up the eyes of the blind and he unstops deaf ears he makes lepers clean and he makes those who are lame walk he's the one who who works in our lives to change us but we ought not to think that there is no effort involved see God's Spirit gives us new eyes and new hearts and new legs so that we might actually go through the narrow door there's a door that's open to us, and yes, God opens our eyes, and he gives us new hearts, and he gives us new taste buds, and he, and he gives us legs to actually walk. And he says, the door is open, what will you do with it? And then you can say, well, well, but I'm not of the chosen. No, that's not the question. The Lord's not saying, yeah, be content with asking those questions. He's saying, the door is open, and what will you do with that? Because Jesus' words, we have to reckon with what Jesus says, he says, strive to enter through the narrow door. He doesn't say, hey, don't worry about anything. I got it all. And you just sit there and relax. He's saying, no, you have to strive to enter through that narrow door. The Spirit of God comes and quickens us so that we might follow Jesus. We can't say, because God is the one who saves, I don't need to do anything. That is a weak understanding of salvation. That is not a full-orbed understanding of what Scripture says, and verily our own Savior, what He has said. It's true that God gives life to those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. That is true. But it is also true that you must confess with your mouth and to believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised Him from the dead. It is also true that Jesus calls out to us to take up our crosses and follow Him. The beauty of the good news is that God opens our eyes to see the open door for us. But he calls us to count the cost and to strive to enter the door. And in fact, the word here that Jesus uses in, in, in the original language here is agonizomai. And I'm not saying that to, you know, agonizomai. Does that sound like any word that we have in our English vocabulary? Agonize. That's where we get our word agonize. If you, I did a quick Google search just to make sure this morning before I said this. But if you do a Google search, ag, agonize morphology it comes from the Latin, which comes from the Greek of agonizomai. To agonize, to strive after. And I just did a, a quick survey here in, um, in Paul's writings. If you go to Paul's writings, Paul says it this way. He says, To this end I labor, striving according to His power that works powerfully in me. Right? I, I strive so that I might... Do you, see, do you see the relationship that Paul is saying God's spirit works mightily in me, so I strive after that. I agonizomai. And then Colossians 4, he says this, um, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, always laboring on your behalf in his prayers. He is agonizomai he is agonizing for them in prayer. Epiphras is. And he says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, he says, For with respect to this reason, we are toiling and struggling since they're, they're toiling and struggling because we have placed our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all people, particularly of those who believe. So he's saying, I am striving because I believe that God is can do this. He's a living God and then 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 12 fight agonizomai fight the good fight of the faith. 2 Timothy 4:7 the good fight I have fought the race I have completed the faith I have kept. But then particularly uh, on in 1 Corinthians 9:25 Paul writes this, everyone who agonizomai everyone who competes exercises self control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we for an imperishable one. It's another word for athlete. Agonizomai, the one who strives, is an athlete. And we just wit- witnessed the Winter Olympics. Um, and uh, you know, I think it's always fascinating as you're watching the Olympics. You're like, wow, that ice skater is only skating for two minutes and thirty seconds. Surely they can hold it together on that quadruple Lutz, whatever, you know, they're doing now. Uh, I think the people, they're up at the quadruples now. So I'm very anxious to see the quintuples and so forth. But, you know, they are striving for two and a half minutes. But that's not the whole story, right? They can't be an athlete and just show up. It'd be like, you know, Chris Farley. I don't know if you've ever seen the Saturday Night Live Skate. I'm not going to get into it. But it'd be like him skating on ice in the Olympics. And that just doesn't happen. It's hours it's, it's hours and days. And months and years of people striving of getting the toe-pick just right, right? Of getting these particular movements to a precision of two and a half minutes. And, And that's what God is calling us to do is that most of your life is not lived in front of other people. Most of your life is lived behind the scenes. What you do at five in the morning or six in the morning. What you do at seven at night or eight at night. That's where most of our lives are lived. And what are we doing with that time? Are we striving after an imperishable crown? They compete for a few minutes, but they're spending all this time sweating and toiling when no cameras are on and no one's watching. Nobody's right clapping for them as they are struggling and breaking legs, twisting ankles, striving after a perishable crown And I do think that as Christians, we need to reconfigure how we conceive of the Christian life. This is a big statement. I understand that. But I do think Christians in America too often take Christian living too lightly. We don't feel like reading our Bible. We don't feel like praying. We don't feel like taking a casserole to a neighbor. We don't feel like that, and so we don't. Athletes don't always feel like it. But the point of their training is not the feeling. It's the metal to hang around their neck. And in the same way, we ought to reconsider how we view the Christian life. Instead of it being a matter of feeling and not feeling like it, I think we need to consider it as a matter of formation. Are we being conformed into the image of Jesus more and more through blood, sweat, and tears through toiling with all of His energy that works in us to quote the Apostle Paul. and So then the question becomes this. What are we really after? Are we after an easy life? A life that gives me meaning and is very self-focused and self-absorbed? Isn't what we're after, simply put, more of God? To know Him and power of his resurrection isn't it to be found in him on that last day isn't that what Christianity is about is to know God and to see him in all of his glory and to be astounded anew and on that last day know that we entered that door because of his spirit quickening our lives so that we could walk through and strive after the narrow door so instead of you know maybe reconfiguring our lives to say this is not pleasant but I know that it will reap a reward in that I will see God. And so many people are just content with <laughs> content with very little instead of striving. And I think that Lent is a gift for us. We've been celebrating the season of Lent now for uh, about a week and a half. Repentance is not a bad word. Repentance is an opportunity to get rid of the stuff that keeps us from enjoying God. The early church understood that. The church throughout the ages has understood that. Lent and repentance is a gift to us. To get rid of all the junk in our hearts and in our lives. And to say I want to do business with God. We would probably look at an athlete who is eating Twinkies. In the off season. As he's probably not going to get a gold medal. So my question for each of us this morning is how much time. How much time are you spending on cultivating your spiritual life? Do you spend any time considering how you can grow in your relationship with God? Have you taken an inventory of your time and your energy and your focus and your discipline? And then the question is, how are you investing that? Our brothers and sisters through the generations have seen the Christian life as one of hemming our appetites in So that they could gain more of God. Too often our our culture, our American culture, calculates how it can get more comfort. And we posture ourselves towards more comfort. And at the end of the day, I do wonder if most Christians are using God to get what they really want. More comfort. Rather, the true Christian seeks to get rid of all the things that inhibit our seeing God. Even as we heard moments ago from Philippians chapter 3, I'll I'll, I'll repeat it again here. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul writes this, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. He's talking about people who were in the church. Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly Things. But this is the same Paul who wrote a few verses earlier in Philippians 3, verse 12. He says, Not that I have already attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I don't consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal For the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Do you notice what he says? Christ has got a hold of me and so I am striving with all of the energy that he's given me to have more of Christ, to get my arms around Jesus. And I fear that too many Christians are busying themselves with things that don't matter at the end of the day, other than in this earthly life you will have praise, right? That's what many times I see See, grace begets grit. Grace begets grit. Grace empowers us to actually strive and to have that energy in us. That's the beauty of the gospel. Grace is intended to empower us to strive toward Jesus. We have an embarrassment of resources always at our disposal. My question then is, are we taking advantage of these gifts or are we taking them for granted? And thinking we'll get around to our spiritual vitality someday when we're not as busy as we are right now. Don't let the door of grace close on you. When you feel that inclination in your heart to read more and to pray more, I want to encourage you to get your calendar out and plan for it. Don't let it pass you by because that won't always happen. But where the Spirit of God is pricking your heart and say, yeah, I, I want to read more. Get out your calendar and say, I will start doing that at 5 tomorrow morning. Put it on your calendar. Strive to enter the narrow door. The door is open to you so that you might have more grace. But you have to walk through it. God is not going to pull you kicking and screaming and dragging you while you're asleep. To walk through the narrow door he says strive to enter that door if, if your eyes are open this morning and if you hear this you're like yes that's what I want I want to strive do it don't think that feeling will come back because I promise you it may not come back a feeling of wanting more of God say God will you please give me that kind of heart that strives for the things that would give me more of you That feeling will not always be there. That is the Spirit of God pricking your heart and take advantage of that and say, God, I I want to take that feeling and I want more of it. And I'm going to put it on my calendar. I'm going to train when I don't feel like it so that I can get more of you. Thirdly and lastly, is this be in Christ. Not around Christ. What we see in our passage is that there are a lot of people who are familiar and who are around the things of God, and this is verses 31 through 35. And and the challenge that Jesus has for you and me this morning is for us to be found in Christ, not around Christ. One of the great tragedies is to go to church services and allow the holy things of God to become common, take them for granted. And notice that Jesus says the ones who recognize their need here on that last day are the very ones who ate and drank with Him. Too often, people begin to put their expectations on God of what He ought not to do and what He ought to do. And He becomes very common to us. Like Israel who grumbled against God in the wilderness. We can often begin to presume upon how God ought to do things. How he, he ought to write out the story of my life. How many times do we hear people pontificating on how they couldn't believe in a God who would send people to hell. All the while forgetting that Jesus himself is the one who said that there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth in verse 28. We can often then domesticate God. We can often put God in a box and say he ought to do this my way how often do we do that when we are frustrated with how our lives have turned out? We put on him what we think he ought to do. This is the great problem we see in King Herod. I'm sure that Herod didn't think that he was setting himself up against God's Messiah. But he became very familiar with Jesus. Oh yeah, 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 he's the guy who goes around the countryside healing people. Okay, yeah, well, whatever. I'm going to go kill him. That's what happens. We, he had grown too familiar with the miracles Jesus was doing all around Galilee. And Jesus says this much, right? In verse 32, he says, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. He says, I'm working diligently in my Father's power. And I can't help but think that this is this warning that Jesus gives to Herod. That don't just be content with being around Jesus and hearing these things and thinking that by talking about Jesus, that you're actually communing with Jesus. That you're actually in Christ and you're actually fellowshipping with Him. And this is the warning that we hear in Hebrews chapter 6. And I'm just going to read these these few verses. From Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1, he says, "Therefore." Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Don't get caught up in all of that. And he says, this we will do if God permits But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. This is the very same thing that Jesus is saying. He's saying don't presume just because you're around the things of God that you are in fact communing with God. But the story doesn't end there, though. The story does not end there, and this is where Jesus gives a savor of grace for each one of us. If you're hearing this this morning, like, I don't want to be in that camp. I don't want to be the one who's heard all of these things about God and I'm not communing with him. Tell me what I got to do. Tell me what I got to do. Well, Jesus this morning, verse 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. If you are willing this morning, the Lord Jesus will gather you under His wing. He wants you to commune with Him in your suffering, in your pain, in your questions, in your doubt, in all of your mess-ups. The Lord says, I would gather you. I don't care. I want to gather you under my wing because I love you and I want to protect you. Do you see this imagery of that He wants to pull you in close to Himself this morning if you will let Him? Don't be like Jerusalem. Who was unwilling. Who heard the things of God and said, I want to get rid of that. I don't want to hear what God has to say to me. That's too much. Instead of saying, Lord, whatever you are calling me to do, I will do. Where you go, I will follow. What you are asking of me, I want to get serious about. I want my spiritual life to be vibrant. But if that's the case, you have to embrace that grace that will then beget the grit that's needed for you to agonizomai, to agonize, to strive with his energy for your good. Let's pray.